the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to another edition of The Dan Proft Show. Follow us at danproftshow.com on social media at Dan Proft Show. Great to have you on board again. And uh, we start uh, our star-studded show with Professor Walter Williams momentarily. But as a setup to introducing Professor Williams, some remarks from uh, pundits and politicians on the left over the last couple of days in terms of where the country goes forward, if it's going to go forward. Representative Al Green, Democrat from Houston at George Floyd's funeral, I said, uh, if it's going to go forward, we need a new government agency. The Congressional Black Caucus has done something. It's historic. The Honorable Karen Bass, under her leadership, we have now a law that makes it against the law to put your foot on the neck of a person. It's against the law. You can't have a no-knock law. It's against the law. You're going to have to wear your body cameras. It's against the law. The Congressional Black Caucus is making a difference. But I believe there's one more thing that we ought to do to make a difference. We have got to have reconciliation. This country has not reconciled its differences with us. We survived slavery, but we didn't reconcile. We survived segregation, but we didn't reconcile. We're suffering invidious discrimination because we didn't reconcile. It's time for a Department of Reconciliation in the highest land, the highest office. It's time to have someone who's going to make it his or her business to seek reconciliation for black people in the United States of America every day of his life. That's what it is it's all about. It's time for us to reconcile. We need a Department of Reconciliation. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe Angela Rice, CNN commentator, could be that point person in a Biden administration. Donald Trump, in so many ways, Chris, is the president of the Confederate States of America. He speaks regularly to that base. He pumps hatred onto Twitter feeds like nobody's business. He is addicted to sending those treacherous signals over and over again. Or more on uh, the Department of Reconciliation and President Trump's uh, lordship over the Confederate States of America. Apparently, that would be, what, 31 states that he won in 2016? A lot more bad people than the 10 to 15 percent of Americans Joe Biden suggested uh, exist. Uh, 60 million Americans spread over those uh, 31 Confederate states, according to Angela Rye. Pleased to be joined now by Professor Walter Williams, Professor of Economics at George Mason University and syndicated columnist. Get all of his writings at WalterEWilliams.com. Professor Williams, what do you say to a Department of Reconciliation so we end the Confederacy in 2020? I'm not quite sure what to say, but people are just kind of using uh, this tragic event in Minneapolis to suggest all kinds, uh, including reparations, uh, departments of reconciliation. 
But, you know, I think that they ought to look at some things that I've written, I wrote in this week's column. Mm-hmm. And the point is the, the most dangerous big cities in our country are St. Louis, Detroit, Baltimore, Chicago, Oakland, and you name Newark, Philadelphia. And the most unique characteristic about these big, dangerous cities where people are just murdered on a daily basis is that they've been run by Democrats for more than a half a century. And on top of that, many of the mayors have been black. The uh, superintendent of schools, the uh, chief of police have been black, and they dominate the the, uh, city councils. And for the most unfortunate black people living in these uh, poor neighborhoods, run-down, high-crime neighborhoods, it hasn't meant anything. And I think that people ought to say, well, well, gee, uh, well, who is responsible for this stuff? And it seems, it's showing that not Republicans are running these cities. And then also look at the education. The education that black kids receive, by and large, is a national disgrace. In one city, and it applies to many other cities as well, such as Baltimore, Maryland, 13 out of the 39 high schools in the city, not a single black student tested proficient in mathematics. Not a single. Hmm. And then in six other schools, only 1%. And then for the whole city, 15% tested proficient in reading. And, and this is an absolute disgrace. And you say, well, who's responsible for it? Well, it's, it's surely not the Republicans that are running it. It's the Democrats that are sitting at the, at the, at the controls and, and that they're just allowing this stuff to happen. Well, and and the, one, the worst thing you can do to a person is to give him rotten education. That will affect him the rest of his life. Well, right. And, and as you uh, document in your column, The True Plight of Black Americans, uh, it's the, the most curious thing, uh, at least on the face of it, which is uh, over the last five decades, you've seen a dramatic increase in black representation in public offices at the local, state and federal level. And yet you've seen a decline in the quality of life in across a number of metrics for black residents who are their constituents. How do you square that uh, seeming contradiction? Well, I, I think you just have to say, well, who is in charge? Who is in charge of these cities? Uh, who is in charge of, uh, of the schools and in charge of other things that have to do with the amenities provided by city government? And you find that it's it's the Democrats, it's liberals that it doesn't have anything to do with racial discrimination. It's the liberal vision of the world. I mean, look in, in uh, again talking about Baltimore in 2015, an average of four teachers were assaulted each school day of the year where they needed medical treatment in Philadelphia. There, you can look at the videos. Just just uh, put in uh, Google search for uh, student assaults on teachers. And you'll see cases where teachers are thrown up against a blackboard. Teachers are, are knocked out cold on the floor. And, and this is tolerated by, by, by the, the superintendent of schools, the, uh, um, the, the mayors and city councils. It's all tolerated. And, and, and that's real tragedy, and it affects the most unfortunate uh, members of the black community. And if you look at the middle-class blacks uh, or black politicians, they would never, never have their kids in schools that most black people have to go to. They, they, go, they send their kids to private schools, parochial schools, or they go out to the suburbs uh, they, and move to the suburbs where there's uh, more civility. 
they would never have their own children in these rotten schools. Is it is part of the explanation that uh, all of the uh, anti-poverty infrastructure bureaucracy programming that was set up uh, actually served again? Here's a, a contradiction: actually served to propagate poverty. Oh, oh yes, <laughs> you know, you know what I've often said that that the that the welfare state has done to black Americans what slavery could not have done, the harshest Jim Crow and racist laws of the South South and discrimination could not have done, and that is namely to destroy the black family. That is, today, 75% of black kids are born out of wedlock. In 1940, it was only 11%. Uh, in, in In the 1880s, and I document this in my book, uh, uh, economics of discrimination, uh, race and, and, and economics, I, uh, I document this in the book and showing that in some cities, uh, 80% of black kids lived in two-parent families in the 1880s. In 1925, in New York City, 95% of black kids lived in two-parent families. And today, I bet whether in New York you can find 15% of black kids living in two-parent families. And that's highly destructive. And it's been created by the welfare state. That is, between 1965, when Johnson declared war on poverty, and today, we've spent approximately $24 trillion on programs that have their object uh, or have their stated object as dealing with some aspect of, of poverty. And, and what has it done? Well, so for, for um, the perspective of your more than eight decades on this planet and all that you've lived through, as you look to the future, what do you see? How does this end? It sounds like badly. Well, uh, yeah, one, one, I think one is a bit uh, pessimistic, but there, 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 there are a little uh, gleams of hope. That is, more and more black people, young black people, are asking questions about uh, the allegiance that blacks have to the Democrat Party. And it doesn't make sense that is to be a one-party people in a two-party system. And what that means is that one party will take your vote for granted and the other party knows that they won't get it, so they won't even try. And so there's not much competition uh, for the black vote. And so until quite recently, uh, there's a little bit more competition. And I believe that that President Trump will get more uh, black votes than he got the last time. And and I think that, that there needs to be some some questioning of what the allegiance to the uh, Democrat Party has done for black Americans. He is an eminent uh, professor of economics at George Mason University and syndicated columnist Walter Williams. Uh, Check out all his writings all the time. WalterEWilliams.com is the website. Professor Williams, always an honor. Thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Profshow.com. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. There was a great discussion uh, online between uh, two great intellects, Glenn Lowry, who's an economics professor at Brown University, and John McWhorter, who's a linguistics professor at Columbia University. Both are 
uh, black gentlemen and um, conservatives. And uh, they took up the issue of uh, the sorts of discussions that are enveloping the nation at present. Uh, Glenn Lowry offering a commentary on one of the more absurd things being advanced by the uh, uh, the identitarians. And this is a strain of identitarians that are orthodox. And they discuss this, too. Those getting more specific, those who see anti-racism as their religion. The huge thing here is whether or not the loss of Mr. Floyd's life was uh, is properly taken as being indicative of a white supremacist domination of black bodies. It amazes me that even that we even speak such sentences. It is uh, rather amazing. But anti-racism as the orthodox iteration of identitarianism. It's a really interesting discussion they had about an hour long. And uh, John McWhorter in the back and forth uh, also sort of raised the prospect uh, that led to a larger discussion about how do you even address these individuals? Do you ignore them? Do you try to reason with them? Uh, Even when it's more likely than not, based on what we've seen, that reason will fail? John McWhorter. How do you get this form of a message out there? I'm wondering whether I should counsel people to face this mob down. You know, do you turn around and not talk to these people because it's like talking to a character out of the crucible and they simply can't listen? Or do you shout these people down and make them feel on the defensive? How do you, how do you try to push a mobbish, unempirical, self-focused ideology in the name of progressivism out of the room? How do you get rid of it? Do you just wait for the fashion to change? And, you know, I'm sure that this, there's a science to this. People have thought about this, and I'm going to do some thoughting about it. But what do you do other than complain? I don't want to yeah. write a book where they book all these people. There has to be a reason for the book. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Rich Lowry. He's the editor of National Review, Fox News contributor and author of The Case for Nationalism, How It Made Us Powerful, United, and Free. Rich, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Hey, thanks for having me. So what about McCorder's question? I don't want to just write a book about it. There has to be a reason. There's a point to why even waste my time. How do you address some of the arguments, uh, to the extent the arguments, which really lines being recited by those uh, rationalizing violence and otherwise uh, kneeling at the altar of anti-racism? Well, first, we should point out that there's just zero evidence of systematic police racism. I believe that's a lie. There is not an epidemic of the police shootings of unarmed black men. Uh, everyone's pointed out that uh, the Washington Post da- database of the shootings, I think there were nine last year. There were 19 or something uh, shootings of, of white uh, men. So this isn't an epidemic. I do think there the best studies show that there's not a racial disparity in the use of lethal force. But there, there is something of a racial disparity further down. Uh, the ladder of force. Um, and there seems to be indications that police are more aggressive with African-American suspects. And, and we've heard that, you know, from people that we know and trust and are, are friends. You know, Tim Scott talked about this a lot. We have a piece on our website from a guy named Theodore uh, Johnson, African-American gentleman, who says he's been to- stopped 40 times by uh, cops in, in his car. I think I've been stopped twice my, my whole life. 
So I think that's something we have to be cognizant of. But that's not a reason to to fund the police. It's not a reason to lie about the the police. It's not a reason to justify violence. And one of the the more disturbing trends, and there have been a lot over the last two or three weeks, is serious intellectuals, David Remnick, Hannah Jones, Nicole Jones. I, I don't know how serious she is, but she's won a Pulitzer Prize, the architect of the 1619 Project. And others have, have said violence is justified, that destruction of property is not violence, that it just pops right back up if you destroy a store. And this just isn't true. Um, this kind of unrest scars cities uh, potentially for decades. And it doesn't hurt the people in the gated communities. You know, they're, they're safe and secure and prosperous regardless. They have the means to leave uh, if they, they don't want to be in an urban area anymore. It hurts the poorest uh, communities. So, so we just have to be absolutely adamant on this. But the frightening thing is just the cultural power of the other side, the fact that corporate America is on the other side, all elite institutions are on the other side. And we're having these cancelings, not just of, you know, prominent people who who may have said something that's completely radioactive and unacceptable. We're having cancelings over, you know, just dubious or controversial statements that don't speak to an evil heart and cancellations of people who aren't famous, you know, the, the deputy director of something or other in, in a Kansas City uh, company. So this is a frightening phenomenon, and it does bear some resemblance to the Cultural Revolution in China. Obviously, you know, two million people aren't going to die, um, but the, the, the fervor of it bears some resemblance to that. Well, here's the thing, too. I'm glad you used the word frightening, because I think sometimes we're there's no reason to overstate the case. Just We're just describing what's happening and the implications, trying to understand the road we're on and maybe how far down that road we, we are. Uh, and I'm not just talking about, you know, the targeting of Paw Patrol by Black Lives Matter, but that's also being targeted. Or the, the disarming Elmer Fudd uh, and Yosemite Sam as Looney Tunes goes full loony. Uh, Dan Henninger writing in the Wall Street Journal, free speech isn't dead in the United States, but it looks like more than ever it requires active defense. What Andrew Sullivan predicted two years ago in a piece in New York Magazine, which he's no longer allowed to write for at present, that we all live on a college campus now. That's playing out in real time in every sector of our society, and most of which, almost all of which, the civic institutions and the public sector institutions are controlled by identitarian leftists, with the exception of the Oval Office and uh, the Senate And so, I mean, you have a lot of raw materials there for the left to do a lot of things that you may have thought uh, two weeks ago or or three months ago were unthinkable. No, I mean, everything we've mocked about Oberlin College for years now is ascendant or becoming ascendant in our culture. Oberlin College has won. You know, the the diversity officer Mm. at Oberlin College, we all thought he or she was completely nuts, is is now a dominant cultural presence. And, you know, the the thing we have is the the common sense and decency of most of the American people still. Um, So we have to go out to win win elections. And, you know, that's why I've been disturbed the the way the president's handled this. You know, there has to be some give. You know, we, we should look at police practices. We should look at union rules around um, policing. And I, I think the president with some of his lunatic tweets and uh, n- not doing any kind of defensive politics around this has really hurt himself. You know, there's no reason that his he should have a 30 percent approval rating on, on this issue. You know, he hasn't done anything to to make these riots happen. He doesn't run the Minneapolis police force or any police force in the country, um, but he's getting blamed for it. And that's entirely just what he said and what he's done. So, you know, the stakes are huge in, in November. And, um, you know, uh, electing uh, 
office holders is, is one of the, the main means of power we have left to us. And if Democrats sweep Washington, it's going to be a world of hurt. Rich Lowry, editor of National Review, Fox News contributor, author of The Case for Nationalism, How It Made Us Powerful, United, and Free. Rich, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Hey, thanks so much. The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. Yesterday before the House Judiciary Committee, a number of uh, individuals testified who have suffered loss. Uh, Philanise Floyd, the brother George Floyd, was one of them. Also, Angela Underwood Jacobs, whose brother was Dave Patrick Underwood. Angela Jacobs, who, by the way, city council member in like in uh, Lancaster, California, Republican, uh, was a uh, briefly a Republican candidate for Congress to uh, in that uh, special election to replace Katie Hill before she dropped out of that race. She had this to say, first starting out about George Floyd. Mr. Floyd's murder was just not cruel and reprehensible, but criminal. The officers involved should be brought to justice and held accountable for their actions or as well as their inaction. I wish that same justice for my brother, Patrick, who served with distinction and honor as a federal officer for the Department of Homeland Security until he was murdered anonymously by blind violence on the steps of the federal courthouse in Oakland, California. I do want to know, though, when I think about all of this, is that my brother wore a uniform, and he wore that uniform proudly. I'm wondering, where is the, where is the outrage for a fallen officer that also happens to be African-American? Where is the outrage? That's a a good question. I don't know uh, if anybody exactly has the answer, although there perhaps are some hypotheses that could be hypotheses that could be advanced to uh, explain it in part. Uh, Tony Childress is a Livingston County, Illinois sheriff. He was one of the law enforcement officers who was invited to the White House on Monday to confab with the President of the United States and talk about uh, policing and race relations and the intersection between the two. And uh, here's what uh, Tony Childers said upon introducing himself to the assembled and explaining the approach that he takes, generally speaking, with policing in Livingston County, Illinois. Uh, Tony Childress is my name, and I am the sheriff of Livingston County. Uh, which is the fourth largest county in the state of Illinois. We're 90 miles south of Chicago. Um, I call it rural central Illinois, and we have an ideology that I feel and many others feel works very well. And that ideology is being a friend of the community, supporting the community with programs like shopping with the sheriff, like Halloween with the children, um, always being there 
as a listening ear for the community and working with the community. And Mr. President, we are happy to sit down with you and to try and do everything we can to make this nation better by keeping the community safe and by working with you and the nation and making a better place. Tony Childress, Livingston County Sheriff, joins us now. Sheriff Childress, thanks for being with us. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. And so, I mean, we we have to start with the racial issue because so much of the conversation is uh, focused around race right now. You're a black sheriff uh, of a of a county that's 90 percent white. How does that work? It works very well. Uh, And uh, thank you for uh, for acknowledging that. And, uh, you know, I've been in Livingston County uh, over 40 years, and uh, I have to say that the uh, the populace in Livingston County, there were some challenges when I first came here in 1979, but we worked through them. And in 1991, I became a deputy with the Livingston County Sheriff's Office, and I've been with the Sheriff's Office now in 29 years. Um, you know, the 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 racial uh, disparities that I have had to encounter have been very, very minimal. Uh, and once again, I'm thankful to the populace and to the people of Livingston County for that. Um, you know, I, I, I've been blessed that I've just not gone through uh, a lot of the racial disparities that go on in the rest of the world. When we come back with Sheriff Childress, uh, I want to continue our conversation about uh, your policing strategy and um, the possibility that some of the principles you're applying in Livingston County could be scaled to the region, state, national level. More with Tony Childress coming up next. Have a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. back with Livingston County Sheriff Tony Childress. And before the break, we were talking about uh, your philosophy on policing. And I wanted to uh, get your opinion about how we could take some of the things that have shown success in Livingston County. Is it just because of, of you and the nature of the residents of Livingston County? I, I, I suspect uh, you and the rest of the Livingston County residents probably not dis- that dissimilar to a lot of other Americans and a lot of other places. So how are how are you all getting along in a way that uh, maybe others could get along, too, if they tried the same approach? I think it goes back to my upbringing, and that upbringing has been to treat others as you would have them treat you. And being fair to people, once you become a person of authority, like I have, you don't let that authority go to your head, and you don't go and abuse people just because you have that authority. You treat people fair and you treat people well. I was taught as a child, good will follow good. 
and bad will follow bad. Does that mean that because you treat people 100% fair, that 100% fairness is going to come back to you? No, it doesn't. But I believe it's in the high 90%. You know, you common folk down there on the farm, you uh, rural people, you don't understand the big city ways, Tony Childress. You don't understand what it's like to live in the big city. And so who are you or any of the Livingston County residents to tell anybody what time it is in the big city where it all happens? We know better. Uh, How are your conversations with law enforcement from big cities? I mean, it seems to me uh, some suburban communities and rural communities uh, like yours actually may have a lot to offer in terms of insight to operating in big cities that really break down into smaller neighborhoods. I would just first tell you that as a child, I was born and raised in St. Louis, and I grew up in a one of probably the worst cities that we know of, and that's East St. Louis. Yeah, sure. There have been times that the crime rate and the murder rate there have excelled anywhere else in the world. So for the first 21 years of my life, I lived in the big city because I ran back and forth as a teenager and early adult from St. Louis, St. Louis County, East St. Louis. And the Metro East area, known as Belleville, Collinsville, Centerville. Uh, So I'm very familiar with all of those areas. Having grown up in the big city, it was quite the transition for me to make when I came to Pontiac, Illinois in 1979 at 21 years old. But so apply that background to uh, what you would say to to cops uh, in St. Louis or Chicago or New York today or, or what you probably you do in your interactions, like with this uh, presidential confab that you were a part of on Monday. I mean, because uh, I'm sure there are conversations when a retired captain like David Dorn is gunned down in St. Louis or or Underwood, the uh, federal security officer gunned down in Oakland. I mean, that that uh, can happen anywhere, and there's got to be approaches that uh, are applicable regardless of the population size or, or the particular demographics. Absolutely. And Captain Dorn, Officer Underwood, those are very, very unfortunate uh, incidents, and they sadden me greatly. What I would say to the officers in St. Louis and Chicago is once again understanding that you have a very larger dynamic of people and obviously we all know that the more people you have the more problems you have as far as i'm concerned the concept and the principles and the ideology are still all the same people are people they want to be treated fairly they want to be treated right they want to be treated with respect and if you treat them with that and not get so high and almighty that you feel like you can't do that or you don't have to do that, in most cases, it's going to work out well. Like I said again, that's not 100% of the time. I get that. How do you respond to the accusation coming from many quarters that the police as an institution systemically racist? I can understand the feeling of some, but how do I address that? Well, I guess I'm blessed that I don't really go through that in my county because it's a smaller county and everybody knows me and I know them. And so that works very well. Most people know that I'm not so high and mighty that they can't approach me. They can't talk to me. 
and they can't send their requests to me through email or through voicemail because I'm 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 a guy that's always gonna try to answer those requests and uh once again just treat people right. People are hurting. You can't act like that that doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, speaking you of know. speaking of that, I wonder how you would respond, uh, or or maybe maybe you would uh, echo uh, Angela Underwood Jacobs, the clip we played at the top of uh, at the top of the segment, where she asked, "Where is the outrage over the murder of her brother, a federal security officer? Where's the I would add, where's the outrage over the murder of David Dorn in St. Louis? That doesn't seem the injuries to the police in big cities." Where is the outrage over that equal? I mean, in addition to in addition to not instead of in addition to, as Angela Jacobs described, the outrage over George Floyd's killing. Why do you think there seems to be a disparity between the um, the attention and the outrage uh, in those cases, Floyd versus the others? It's absolutely, uh, absolutely a tragic event when. You can have a person like Mr. Floyd killed right in front of our very eyes on TV. And you have the outrage for that. But a man that's given almost 40 years of his life as a St. Louis police officer, uh, as a federal officer, anybody that's a civil servant that gets killed in the line of duty or out of the line of duty. And there's no outrage for it. That's sickening. That's despicable. And it should not ever occur. But for some reason, that's the way uh, people have decided to act. And I don't like it. And I'm very disheartened by it. He is Tony Childress. He's the sheriff in Livingston County, Illinois. Sheriff Childress, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. We played some of what uh, Felonese Floyd, George Floyd's brother, had to say before the House Judiciary Committee yesterday on yesterday's program. But we didn't get to Angela Underwood Jacobs. She is the sister of Dave Patrick Underwood. That's the uh, federal security officer who was essentially assassinated in Oakland. And um, she uh, offered her testimony, by the way, interestingly, Angela Underwood Jacobs, uh, Dave Underwood's sister, Dave Patrick Underwood's sister. Uh, She is a uh, Republican city council member in Lancaster, California. She was briefly a Republican candidate for Congress in the seat vacated by uh, Democrat Congresswoman Katie Hill. Just interesting context. Um, She started her testimony by addressing George Floyd's murder before addressing her brother's. Mr. Floyd's murder was just not cruel and reprehensible, but criminal. The officers involved should be brought to justice and held accountable for their actions or as well as their inaction. I wish that same justice for my brother, Patrick, 
who served with distinction and honor as a federal officer for the Department of Homeland Security until he was murdered anonymously by blind violence on the steps of the federal courthouse in Oakland, California. I do want to know, though, when I think about all of this, is that my brother wore a uniform, and he wore that uniform proudly. I'm wondering, where is the outrage for a fallen officer that also happens to be African-American? Where is that outrage for Dave Patrick Underwood, for David Dorn in St. Louis? Where is that outrage for the black and Latino, as well as white, all police officers who've been injured responding to rioters over the last uh, weeks throughout the country? Where is that uh, outrage? Uh, Heather McDonald, friend of the show, you know her, the uh, author of the bestseller War on Cops. She also delivered testimony to the House Judiciary Committee in which she again acknowledged uh, the complication here, the history The history of law enforcement in the U.S. was interwoven with slavery and segregation. The memory of policing's complicity with racial oppression cannot be easily erased. Heather McDonald agreed. But in 2020 America, living in the present, looking to the future, McDonald added, I urge this committee to reject the proposition that law enforcement today is systemically biased. The evidence does not support the charge. Police officials and officers across the country have expressed their disgust at the chillingly callous behavior seen in the Floyd video. It's a violation of everything that the profession currently currently stands for. Embracing the systemic bias allegation will only lead to more lives lost to criminal violence. Many of them, sadly, will be black. Uh, you can recognize the bad historically without uh, propagating bad prospectively. This is um, a understanding nuance that evades those Uh, so many of those in public offices as well as on public streets. And it's going to lead to very bad public policy. This is Dan Pratt. Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. Follow us at danproftshow.com for podcasts of the program and uh, on social media at Dan Proft Show as well, Facebook and Twitter. Yesterday, one would expect when a judge brings in a friend, a former federal judge, to give him an opinion that he is seeking, he gets the opinion he was seeking. And that's what U.S. District Court Judge Emmett Sullivan got from his friend, retired federal judge John Gleason, who uh, recommended that despite the Department of Justice moving to dismiss the charges against General Flynn, that the case should go forward to sentencing. That was the recommendation that Judge Gleason Clinton appointee gave to Judge Sullivan, Clinton appointee. The facts surrounding the filing of government's motion constitute clear evidence of gross prosecutorial abuse. They reveal an unconvincing effort to disguise as legitimate a decision to dismiss that is based solely on the fact Flynn is a political ally of President Trump, Gleason wrote in his filing yesterday. By the way, um, you know, there have been some utterances from Judge Sullivan, the presiding judge in this case, that are a bit troubling, like when he characterized Flynn as selling out his country. That's a, sort of a political statement, not a legal one. 
And uh, it's a political statement that really doesn't square with the facts as we have come to know them from all of the documents now obtained about the attitudes that FBI had about Flynn's truthfulness when they first interviewed him, as well as the uh, fishing expedition FBI was on with respect to Trump world. Attorney General Barr sat down with our friend Brett Baer earlier in the week to cover a range of topics. One of the charges he addressed, which is implicated in this Gleason filing, is that Attorney General Barr is acting like the president's attorney rather than the people's attorney, which is his job as the attorney general, the chief law enforcement officer of the country. For the first time in American history, police organizations and the national security organizations were used to spy on a campaign, and there was no basis for it. And the media largely drove that, and all kinds of sensational claims were being made about the president that could have affected the election. And then later on in his administration, there were actions taken that really appear to be efforts to sabotage uh, his campaign. And that has to be looked at. And if people want to say that I'm political because I am looking at those potential abuses of power, so be it. But that's the job of the attorney general. Uh, and uh, just building on that to the question of we we have some pretty compelling evidence that's in the public arena as to uh, people who lied under oath, perhaps committed other crimes, including the basis for the unmasking of General Flynn. Why haven't there been charges? I do find it a little irritating the propensity in the American public on all sides of the political spectrum when they see something they think could be a criminal violation and say, why hasn't this person been indicted yet? Why hasn't this person been indicted? Why? And, you know, there's the old saying that, that the wheels of justice uh, grind slow, and they do grind slow because we have due process and we follow the process. But people should not draw from the fact that no action has been taken that taken yet, uh, that that means that uh, people are people are going to get away with wrongdoing. OK, we'll try to maintain our patience for more on this. Uh, Adam Mill, an attorney specializing in labor, employment and public administration law, contributor to the Federalist amgreatness.com and the Daily Caller joins us. Adam, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. No, oh, thanks so much for having me. Well, uh, let's uh, talk about uh, some of these uh, other matters that are going on concurrently. Uh, starting with your reaction to the Gleason filing in the Flynn case yesterday. Look, this person who wrote this amicus brief, he wrote an an editorial op-ed in the Washington Post in order to influence the case, and he was successful with that. And there have been a number of people, including myself, who have noticed that the phrasing in some of these legal documents appear to be lifted right out of CNN, out of the Washington Post. Judge uh, Sullivan and now former Judge Gleason seem to be they watch MSNBC, Rachel Maddow, or they watch CNN, and the next day those words appear in the the brief. But just to kind of sum up what the problem is with the Flynn prosecution, and I'm sure you've done it before for your listeners, he's charged with making a false statement about a conversation or a series of conversations he had with the ambassador of Russia, Sergei Kislyak, and there are only three problems. The first problem is they never did provide him with a copy of the transcript of what was actually said. Margot Cleveland did a piece in The Federalist pointing out that what he later said about the phone call with Kislyak was technically true. He said, I didn't talk about sanctions. He didn't talk about sanctions. He talked about expulsions. So that's one problem. The other problem is, is they can't figure out what exactly did Flynn say to the FBI agents because they allowed people to edit Flynn's statement without his participation or knowledge to include Lisa Page, who wasn't even at the uh, interview with Flynn. And the government's motion admits 
It's been edited so many times, we can't figure out what Flynn actually said to the FBI agents anymore. So they can't figure out what the truth is. They can't figure out what the lie was that Flynn supposedly said. And then the third problem is the FBI, if they're going to prosecute somebody for making a false statement, they have to show the investigation was relevant to an official purpose of the FBI. They can't show that either. Like all three elements of the crime are not present. And so when you read this Gleason brief, when you hear how it's being reported, none of that is being discussed. And it's pure politics. That's all it is. The left has a lot of control over the criminal justice system right now, and they want to retain that control. And when you read about, oh, well, this will help Trump, I mean, that's really their argument. And that's really the beginning, the end, and the middle of their legal argument against dismissing the case. Just to be specific, Barr said that they weren't, you know, based on what he knows about the German investigation, Obama, Biden are not targets of the investigation. He didn't say anything. He didn't use the I word. He didn't talk about indictments at all. Right. And I mean, I think the other thing is that because Obama and Biden were elected and they were serving as, you know, in that top executive role, you know, I mean, I think you look to these next level people who were not elected, who took the oath to support and defend the Constitution, whose job it is to tell a president, no, if, if something is, you know, a little sketchy or illegal. You know, I mean, I think there are some there's some professionals within the Justice Department, the FBI, who should be concerned. I think that potentially Ray needs to be concerned. FBI Director Christopher Ray concerned about his job or concerned concerned legally. I think he needs to be concerned about his job, and I think that he has made some certifications along the way to the FISA court. You know, this is in the post Comey era. There's already been a DOJ Office of Inspector General report that has shown that the FBI has continued to spy illegally on Americans. That's during the Ray era. Also, he has allowed the um, the confidential human source program in the FBI to completely go off the rails so that these FBI agents who form these kind of whitey boulder relationships with their confidential informants, they're supposed to be supervised to make sure that they're not working for the informant. He's completely allowed that to atrophy. He's stonewalled Congress. He's got, he doesn't follow the directions of the attorney general or the president. So I think definitely he should be worried about his job. And there may be some certifications out there or some promises he made to the FISA court that aren't valid. I mean, Comey has that problem. He's exposed. Uh, speaking of the FISA court, Angela Cotavia, who actually was involved in the drafting of the animating legislation that uh, gave form to these FISA courts, the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act of 1978, says uh, we need to scrap it. It's unconstitutional. It was conceived to be a rubber stamp. There is not sufficient punishments included in the in the statute to uh, prevent wrongdoing. It, it is a rubber stamp. There has been wrongdoing. It's, you know, preemptory clearance uh, from a, uh, for surveillance from a judge who knows nothing of the case, is relying on the integrity of the moving party, and uh, the, it should be scrapped. I completely agree. Uh, you know, w- w- the, the first and most important responsibility of everybody in the executive branch is to support and defend the Constitution. It's not a small thing that FISA has resulted in just massive uh, illegal spying on Americans. And we're always told that these, you know, dedicated career professionals are bound by their oath uh, of, you know, oath to the Constitution. Well, the Constitution has the Fourth Amendment, the Fifth Amendment, the Sixth Amendment. Uh, these are, these are, that's what they're supposed to be supporting and defending. And if FISA, you know, if you, the business of the FBI is to defend the Constitution. And right now they're operating at a loss. So 
we need to get rid of FISA. I absolutely agree with that. Whatever the law enforcement benefit of FISA is, you know, they did a study uh, about, I don't know, five or 10 years ago or so of how many cases were actually solved, how many crimes were prevented using all of this uh, spying, some of it pursuant to FISA, some of it, you know, under the NSA's database. And virtually no crimes have been have been solved or prevented because of all this spying. But yet we're doing it to the tune of a thousand spying warrants, a thousand FISA warrants every year. You know, why? And if the, the proponents of all these spying, uh, if they'd solve crimes, if they'd stop terrorist attacks, they'd be telling us about it right now. But they don't have those examples, but they want to keep doing it anyway. And they say, trust us because we'll punish people who abuse it. And then they don't punish the people. And then they say, trust us anyway. Mm. No, scrap it. He is Adam Mill, an attorney specializing in labor, employment, and public administration law, contributor to The Federalist, amgreatness.com, and The Daily Caller. Adam, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you so much, and stay safe. You too. seat and sharpen your pencils class is in session with professor dan proft and the dan proft show because they got the beat the campus beat the campus beat Yeah, Dan uh, Croft back with you. And uh, yesterday's campus beat, uh, a little bit uh, uplifting. Certainly some of the uh, students that were quoted in the Wall Street Journal's Future View column giving their assessments on the protests and riots and how, you know, making the reasonable statement, many of the computer science and math majors at least, that you can both be outraged by the Floyd murder, dare I say murder, and also uh, the rioting, uh, be against the rioting that occurred, separate and distinct from the peaceful protesters. In other words, you can stand with George Floyd and justice for George Floyd. And you can also stand with innocent people who were injured or had their businesses destroyed as a result of people acting illegally. You can act on the... You can stand on the same side of the law for both Floyd and people who are victims of rioters. Not that complicated, but it was nice to hear young people on college campuses who aren't really necessarily getting that message from the professorate uh, express those views. Well, I'm afraid the um, optimism emanating from college campuses is in short supply. Uh, Rich Lowry earlier in the program mentioned that... uh, the uh, Oberlin College diversity officer won the culture war. And uh, sort of a corollary to we all live on a campus now, Andrew Sullivan's formulation from a couple of years ago. Don't we, though? Back to campus. UCLA professor suspended and under police protection for refusing to exempt black students from final exam. Gordon Klein is an accounting professor in the Anderson School of Business has taught at UCLA for almost 40 years. He's now suspended and under police protection in his home. The reason he would not exempt black students from his final exam. And he sent a pointed rebuttal to students who had petitioned him for a no harm exam. No harm, meaning 
it couldn't have a negative impact on their grade. He was suspended, the professor, for his response, I guess, and refusal to acquiesce. Now, uh, under investigation for discrimination and uh, under death threats, he is uh, at home, not teaching and being protected by police. Remember, these black students, the oppressed black students, before you hear what they said, these are what uh, accounting students or liberal arts students taking an accounting class at UCLA. And they're traumatized and oppressed and need to find safety in uh, having the grade they want assigned to them. Group of students, this is according to Inside Higher Ed, group of students asked client for a no harm final, could only benefit students' grades as well as shorten exams and extended deadlines. They uh, cited the recent traumas, quote, traumas we have played, we have been placed in a position where we must choose between actively supporting our black classmates or focusing on finishing up our spring quarter. We believe that remaining neutral in times of injustice brings power to the oppressor and therefore staying silent is not an option. They specifically noted that this was not a, quote, joint effort to get finals canceled for non-black students, unquote, but rather and ask that you exercise compassion and leniency with black students in our major, black accounting majors at UCLA. A Klein's response to one student generated the complaint that generated his uh, suspension per discrimination, discrimination investigation and death threats. Thank you for your suggestion in your email below. I give black students that I give black students special treatment given the tragedy in Minnesota. Klein writes, do you know the names of the classmates that are black? How can I identify them since we've been having online classes only? Are there any students that maybe have mixed parentage, such as half black, half Asian? What do you suggest I do with respect to them? A full concession or just half? Also, do you have any idea if any students are from Minneapolis? I'm thinking that a white student from there might possibly even be possibly even more devastated by this, especially because some might think that they are racist, even if they're not. My T.A. is from Minneapolis, so if you don't know, I can probably ask her. Can you guide me on how you think I should achieve a no-harm outcome since our sole course grade is from a final exam only? Uh, uh, One last thing strikes me, he concluded. Remember that MLK famously said that people should not be evaluated based on the color of their skin. Do you think that your request would run afoul of MLK's admonition? That led to the demands that he be fired, and that led to the school bending its knee to the mob thousands signing a petition that he must be fired for his extremely insensitive dismissive and woefully racist response invoking king uh, making them feel unsafe he committed an act of violence by reminding them that if i give you a no harm exam i've given you a no harm class i might as well just give you an a because the exam is the entire grade doesn't matter one more story this from the post-millennial And uh, boy, this is uh, positively Dickensian. The diversity inclusion equity movement, DIE, what an appropriate acronym, is now taking over STEM. DIE over STEM. Yeah, that has uh, uh, more than one meaning. Uh, The uh, author of the piece talking about a colleague of his. Having successfully suppressed the numbers of white males in most other departments, the diversity, inclusion, and equity movement, DIE, has turned its saronic eye, thank you for the Lord of the Rings reference, on STEM, the Academy's Alamo of merit-based research. 
Dai's ways are not subtle, as a friend of mine recently discovered. He's a long-time tenured professor in the physical sciences at a major Canadian university. Let's call him Nick. Doesn't name him. Nick has been denied a major grant he applied for to further research that would benefit high-tech and the energy field. Now, being turned down is not necessarily unusual with these applications. However, it's the first time in his career he'd been turned down on the basis of die diversity, inclusion, equity, rather than a technical grounds. In fact, the review panel wrote to him that while they appreciated the enthusiasm for creating diverse and inclusive teams, the requirement for concrete measures was not met. Therefore, his grant application was not reviewed further extensively. In other words, they never got to the substance of his proposal because he didn't meet the die threshold requirements. It would, as the post millennial writes, it would not have mattered if Nick's project was honing in on a vaccine for COVID-19. If the team, however, socially engineered, it needed to be, did not meet die standards of proportionality. The fix was already in this came as a stunning blow to Nick over 15 years. Nick has raised $6 million in research funding. He writes about two grants a year. Used to be, he told me that in writing up the grant, you'd fill five pages detailing the technical aspects of the project, how it benefits society as a whole, and one paragraph on how it would help to advance the fortunes of traditionally underserved populations. Now, you have to write as many pages or more on how your project will serve die, who both, uh, especially women and indigenous people, who both tend to shun STEM. A brave new world, Aldous Huxley fans, that is upon us. And it is uh, going to get more and more ignorant as long as academics, real researchers, true intellectuals, educational leaders continue to acquiesce to the mob. This is Dan Proff. The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. Um, interesting piece by Peter Sudeman at Reason Magazine, Reason.com, citing some uh, polling and how attitudes of Americans have shifted over the notion of whether or not police are systemic uh, have systemic cultural problems if not systemic racism uh and uh, the incidents like uh george floyd the uh unjust killing of a black man and unjust killing of anybody whether those are isolated incidents or, uh, or or larger problems with police culture uh washington post poll 69 percent of americans say floyd's killing represents a systemic problem just 29% say it's isolated. It's basically two to one. Six years ago, more than half of Americans saw police killings of honor black men as isolated events with just 43% viewing them as part of a wider trend. So that has jumped by nearly 50%, the number who see police as having a systemic problem with killing unarmed black men, even though the data suggests they're anomalous events. Also, uh, the the resulting shift in bipartisan activism against police violence. Seventy four percent of Americans support the protests uh, that the George Floyd killing sparked. Okay, so do I. uh, But I don't support the rioting and the distinction there. 
Uh, also, a Monmouth poll released last week found 57% of Americans, including about half of white Americans, said police officers were generally more likely to treat black people unfairly than to mistreat white people, which is also a dramatic change in public attitudes. I mean, that's essentially a majority and darn near a supermajority of Americans saying the police are racist. I don't know how else you describe that statement. Police more likely to treat black people unfairly than mistreat white people. Um, that's a, insinuating racism. There's no question. Uh, so uh, the response and the uh, direction and tone of police uh, of trying to push for police reform, what should that take? For more an answer to that question, we're pleased to be joined by Zed Jelani. He's uh, a writing fellow at Greater Goods Bridging Differences. And uh, Zed, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Yeah, great to be here. So are you uh, surprised by those uh, numbers in terms of uh, the majorities of Americans who see systemic problems with police and and uh, who uh, essentially see the police as uh, having a problem with racism? Uh, Peter Sudeman suggests that the simplest explanation is that we started filming cops and people changed their minds. Uh, I think it's perhaps more complicated than that, but I'd like your thoughts. Yeah, so I think it's really interesting. I think if you go back to 2012, 2013, you looked at some of the same surveys. Uh, you did a little bit of that, just, you know, just showing how surveys were a few years ago. They were dramatically different. Um, and there isn't a whole lot of evidence that police behavior got worse or something during that time period. In fact, there's some evidence that they got better overall in terms of less abuse or less, at least less shootings, which are getting fairly well documented now. Yeah. Um, but I think probably the big change was that the cases where there are abuses or apparent abuses or alleged abuses, a lot of them are recorded now because smartphones didn't become a kind of common device in the U.S. public until maybe 2013, 2014. Uh, at that point, Facebook's user base had really exploded. Uh, YouTube's user base has exploded. And I think that having that information in the public square, uh, sometimes contextualized, sometimes not, uh, probably helped change public consciousness more than anything. I mean, there was always a news media, right? There were always newspapers and news networks and so on and so forth. Uh, they would cover these cases occasionally, prominent cases like, you know, Rodney King, which was recorded on the camcorder, uh, prominent cases like Amber Diallo in New York. Um, but there wasn't the capacity or accessibility for the average person to film something with just their smartphone as it's happening in front of them. And I think that really did change so much of the dialogue around this. And as the dialogue changes, I think people's minds tend to change, too. Do you think, uh, well, I'll tell you what, let's let's hold it right there because the that prompts the next question. Well, has that change been good? Is it a more informed dialogue or... Is it a more frenzied dialogue based on uh, over-extrapolating from the anomalous, as you were suggesting, in terms of the trends of some of the stats, as I was suggesting as well, based on all the data out there? Uh, the data doesn't matter when you see uh, a Minneapolis officer with his knee on the neck of George Floyd, and then uh, that's rinsed and repeated and shared and, and amplified, and it becomes uh, somehow emblematic of, of what, 800,000 police officers in America? I don't know if that's improving the dialogue, even if it's exposing, better exposing those uh, uh, few uh, police officers who uh, break the law. But uh, want to get your take on that whole category of conversation. More with Zed Jelani, Greater Goods Bridging Differences writing fellow, right after this.
political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. We're talking to Zed Jelani, Greater Goods Bridging Differences Writing Fellow, and uh, we left off with uh, how essentially social media and smartphones, where everybody is a is a uh, citizen reporter or can be, have changed the way the conversation surrounds police, police abuse, police reform, because of incidents captured on video, like like Walter Scott getting shot in the back in South Carolina, like George Floyd being essentially choked out in Minneapolis. And uh, the question we left off with was, um, has the uh, dialogue improved as a result of these videos and social media and the media amplification, or is it degenerated into um, greater misunderstanding of police and their role in a free society? Is that your view on that? Yeah, so it's probably a little bit mixed. I think in terms of some of the individual cases, it would have been very difficult to understand that these were cases of abuse if no one had filmed it. And that's not just the social media or the smartphones. That's also like body cameras. Like a lot more police departments use body cameras now than they used to. Yeah. So in terms of some of the individual cases, I do think having this technology did help bring some of those cases to accountability, whereas they wouldn't have had it before. But I do think that there's something psychologists call the availability heuristic. Uh, heuristic is basically a mental shortcut you make in your brain. And I think the availability heuristic basically says we make those determinations around the world with the information that's available to us. And I think a lot of people just don't have much experience with policing or with crime or with studying them or understanding them other than right now those YouTube videos of, of abusive police officers. So I do think this has led some people. So, for instance, one thing we see in surveys is when you ask people about their local police department, they generally are favorable towards it. And that's pretty constant. But when you ask people about the national police situation, they get much more negative. And I think part of that is just that they have created in their minds a very negative perception of police overall due to a series of kind of anecdotes that they've read about, right, or they've seen in these videos. And I think that's less helpful because when we make those kind of blanket generalizations or we make the kind of blanket calls based off of anecdotes, we know that's generally not true because the plural of anecdote is not data, right? Um, For instance, I I don't think most people know the number of unarmed people killed by police every year is actually very, very low. It's like maybe 30 to 40. I think Typically, about a quarter of those are African-American. The rest tend to be Latino or white or Asian, and so on and so forth. Uh, Certainly, it's a real issue. But as you said, there's 800,000 police officers. There's about 18,000 police departments. There are, I don't know, 50,000, I think, or something, police, civilian interactions every day or stops every day. If you think about it, it really is a very small portion of the police force that has been engaged in any kind of abuse. And, of course, sometimes it is difficult to hold those people accountable because of the way the contracts are written and bureaucracy. And those are totally legitimate issues, I think, to discuss. But we shouldn't kind of throw the baby out with the bathwater when we're thinking about policing because, of course, most people want adequate, accountable policing. They still want it, right? And I think when you take a profession and you kind of, portray it all as one way, a lot of people won't want to go into it. I mean, the same thing I think happened with teaching a few years ago. I think teachers just lost so much morale because there was sometimes, I think, just an overload of stories of just about bad teachers. It wasn't, there wasn't good contact with them. And you don't want it to be the case that people who would be good police officers, you really want to serve the public, want to be accountable, transparent, uh, not abusive, just don't want to go into the profession because they start to view the entire thing as corrupt or unfixable or unreformable. And I think that can happen if you look at some of these abuses, I think, without the, the wider context of what's happening in the, in the profession and 
what's happening in the country. Well, yeah, and and just to your point about to support the local police, uh, don't like police uh, as sort of an abstraction, sort of like I like my congressman, but I hate Congress. That that also includes black people in majority black neighborhoods, and we see that consistently in the polling. You know, I want my neighborhood police, particularly if uh, we've got a high incidence of violent crime, because I'm a law-abiding uh, black man, black woman, black family, and I want to be protected. I'm entitled to the same protection as somebody living in a ritzy white area, uh, say, in, a, in my city of Chicago. And so that attitude is prevalent, but you wouldn't know it based on whose voices get amplified. And uh, it seems to me a much more textured conversation that's required here could uh, be facilitated by the uh, voices of, uh, you know, regular workaday black American families getting some airing here, too, just uh, not just, uh, you know, affiliates of Black Lives Matter. Yeah, and I, I mean, I think this is more of an issue of national media and local media. I think local media does do generally portrays a more kind of balanced picture of this, more nuanced picture of this. I think national media, though, and having been in and around national media, I think it tends to have a habit of picking a narrative and sticking with it. Okay, that's the narrative. Let's have every story kind of reflect that narrative over and over and over, drive clicks, drive views, yeah. so on and so forth. And I think national media often, you know, they made police abuse the story, which is a legitimate story, but it's one portion of the story. I mean, another portion of the story is the fact that, you know, even prior to what was happening with George Floyd, and the protests, riots, so on and so forth, they were surging crime in some parts of America, like... There were some cities that saw an 80% increase in homicides from, like, last year. Uh, some parts of Ohio, uh, some parts of Pennsylvania. I think homicides are even up in New York and L.A. now. Those are, like, serious crimes. Those, are very, those involve a lot of people being hurt and killed. We have to have, like, some type of response in that. And police may not be the entire response, but they are part of the response. But I don't think, like, watching national media, do you get a good sense of that happening? And certainly, you know, uh, the, the amplification of defund the police movement uh, or the stories of Seattle and and uh, the uh, flux state in the middle of that city uh, don't aid that discussion. It wouldn't seem to me. But I I want before we let you go, I wanted to get to this piece that uh, you pen for Quillette com as well on the issue of uh, rioting versus uh, nonviolent protests, the the um, civil disobedience as practiced by, by Reverend Martin Luther King versus some of what we saw on the streets of America over the last two weeks. Not only does the rioting not help in terms of uh, policing in black neighborhoods and, and reduction of crime in black neighborhoods, but it also doesn't help the overall cause you find in terms of persuading the larger public about the underlying issues such as police reform. So there was a paper by Omar Wasa, who's a uh, professor over at Princeton. Uh, one of his parents, I believe, was involved in Freedom Summer. They were involved in the civil rights movement. Uh, he's always been interested in this topic. So what he did is he used a bunch of data from surveys back then, and what he found uh, was that when the civil rights movement was 100% peaceful, following uh, the tactics laid out by Reverend King, by John Lewis, by Andrew Young, these people, uh, it actually successfully moved public opinion a lot. Like a lot of people were so sympathetic to seeing these people nonviolently confronted with dogs and hoses and abuse of police, so on and so forth. Uh, but the problem is in the late 60s, uh, things got very violent. There was announced rioting. Public opinion shifted so, so sharply towards social control, meaning people just wanted public safety, uh, that he postulates that this even elected Richard Nixon. Like, it made enough of a difference to elect Richard Nixon. Of course, when Nixon came in, that's when civil rights legislation kind of ground to a halt. There was the war on drugs, you know, law and order, so on and so forth. So obviously, you know, this is something we've seen over and over. He is Zed Jelani, Greater Goods, Bridging Differences, writing fellow. Zed, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks. Whoa, whoa. 
listen, the more you'll know. This is The Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. More politics and sports. NASCAR announcing yesterday that it is banning Confederate flags at NASCAR events. It already banned the uh, Confederate flag on its cars, but uh, now is uh, banning it from any presence at NASCAR events. By the way, NASCAR is a little behind the times. I think the NFL is already on the cusp of banning the American flag, and that seems to be what Black Lives Matter and their accomplices want. But okay, the Confederate flag drawing varied responses. Ray Cicerelli, who is a NASCAR truck series driver, quitting the sport at the end of the year, saying that I don't believe in kneeling during the anthem nor taking people's right to fly whatever flag they love. I could care less about the Confederate flag, but there are people that do, and it doesn't make them a racist if all you're doing is blank one group to cater to another to participate in any political BS. So everything is for sale. He's done, doesn't want the politics. And so he's done. Now, on the flip side of that is Bubba Wallace, who is the only uh, black driver in the uh, uh, NASCAR top flight cup series. And I'm not much of a NASCAR guy, so I don't know this. I know who Richard Petty is. He wanted NASCAR to ban the use of all Confederate flag at his events. Uh, meanwhile, he and his team, Richard Petty Motorsports, are preparing to race a car this week emblazoned with hashtag Black Lives Matter. It will uh, feature an image on the hood of a black hand clasping a white one in solidarity, featuring the words compassion, love, understanding. Wallace saying, I'm excited for the opportunity to run hashtag Black Lives Matter on the car for Martinsville, referring to the uh, Southern Virginia hosting uh, site uh, that's uh, hosting the next uh, event in the series, the Cup Series. So uh, it's okay for Bubba Wallace. By the way, Black Lives Matter, uh, compassion, love, and understanding. Is that what Black Lives Matter promotes? Have you gone to the blacklivesmatter.com site and read their What We Believe section? It is. I'll just summarize it briefly. It's just Marxist claptrap is what it is. So, uh, it's uh, again, it's okay for some opinions like kneeling before the flag in the NFL, Kaepernick versus Breeze, and, you know, and others. It's okay for you to disrespect the flag. It's not okay for you to say, I don't like the flag being disrespected. It's okay for you to hashtag Black Lives Matter uh, as long as you paper over their actual posture with words that have no relation to their positions. But it's not okay to, you know, see in the Confederate flag something that different than other people see. I have no issue. I mean, I don't care about the Confederate flag either. But, but remember the argument that was advanced against Drew Brees is, you know, he sees something very differently when he looks at the American flag than I do, said Michael Wilbon, among others. Why can't somebody look at the Confederate flag and see something very different than what Bubba Wallace sees? Some acceptable opinions, other unacceptable opinions. The purge in sports is what this is. No segment of society will be spared from these Maoist purgers. Get ready. You're going to have to decide uh, soon. I'm sure, regardless of your chosen course of life or your uh, chosen hobbies, whether you're in the uh, Bubba Wallace camp, says my opinion and ban opinions that are not like mine, uh, or uh, you're in the uh, Ray Cicerelli go Galt camp, essentially. Not too many people want to stand and fight, which is exactly what the uh, Maoist purgers want. Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news. 
The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. Follow us at danproftshow.com. Uh, I read an interesting uh, piece by an associate professor at the Max Bell School of Public Policy at McGill University up in Strange Brewland. He's a former editor-in-chief of the Ottawa Citizen, Andrew Potter. Why Everyone Hates the Mainstream Media, I immediately thought of Elizabeth Bear Browning's sonnet, How Do I Love Thee? Let Me Count the Ways. Why Do I Hate the Mainstream Media? Let Me Count the Ways. Well, uh, Mr. Potter provides uh, some explanations for why the disgust is across the ideological spectrum. So we thought we might get him for a discussion, and we've done that. Andrew Potter, associate professor at the Max Bell School of Public Policy at McGill University, former EIC of the Ottawa Citizen. Thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. No, it's my pleasure. So um, you uh, talk about the naive view of the media. A naive view is that uh, news is about providing readers with information to make them more civic-minded and a better citizen and so on and so forth. And uh, thus we have a better uh, a, a, you know, a, a better republic in the case of America. And uh, you suggest that um, that's just not the case. That's a naive view of of the media. And so what is the uh, more uh, seasoned view of the media that people should understand? Yeah, I like that word seasoned because um, when, when I sort of give this spiel to various people, they kind of say, oh, that's very cynical, right? And, and it's kind of hard to sort of respond to some of these cynical. I like that word seasoned because um, what I argue, um, and I kind of steal a bit of the argument from Inconstance and Tyler Cowen, but I kind of expanded a bit, and it's that what's going on with the media, both the way things are presented and the way media actually interacts with other media, is uh, a great deal of jockeying for status. And uh, so one way in that that happens is just the way stories are written. Virtually every news story, um, from from the way the headline is written to the photos that are chosen to the way the lead is chosen or written and the story is framed, all the way to who's quoted and in what order and and so on, all of this um, makes implicit judgments about uh, the status of the people involved in the story or the events or, or what have you. And that those, those judgments, right, about which story is, is uh, or which person is worth quoting and, and where it's placed on the page of a newspaper, for instance, all of these things um, make these judgments. And, and the truth is, when you're talking about the mainstream media, right, that supposedly is in the center, you know, appealing people on the left and right, um, hardly anybody is actually going to share all of those judgments that the media is making. And as a result, whenever you read the media, um, everyone comes out, comes out of it really angry, and they don't understand why. And it's because basically their value judgments are being denigrated and insulted or rejected um, on almost every page or in every story they read. And they don't even realize that the extent to which um, that valuelessness of the news is kind of making them feel bad and, and almost insulting them. And well, so that's sort of what I, what I try to argue. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with the status thing. I, I remember when I started some newspapers with a, a colleague who had been in the publishing business, uh, community-oriented newspapers, local newspapers. The uh, His admonition was uh, picks and proper nouns. It's all about pictures and proper nouns. The idea that you start writing about people, they cannot help but read about themselves and then other people they know, and that 
you get a lot of that in a tight knit community. And so that that status of did you see uh, what they wrote about uh, Joe Smith? Did you see what they wrote about uh, Sally Jones and uh, and so forth? I get that. One of the other things, though, that I find infuriating and I'm not so sure that you covered it here. I think you sort of did implicitly um, and you started to get to it there. The judgments that are being made, the value judgments that are being made, but it's presented in a in uh, under the I think disingenuous veneer of objectivity, uh, fairness, uh, rather than just being look. I have this perspective, and I I cop to this perspective, and then so that informs everything that you are going to get in the New York Times or the Washington Post or National Review. The difference is National Review is transparent about who they are. And until maybe more recently, the New York Times, the Washington Post, some of the uh, television outlets as well uh, are not transparent. They're not honest about who they are. That's right. And I think that's that's a struggle the mainstream media is in right now is this this idea that that the media has had for most of the 20th century, right, that they're this this objective view from nowhere kind of thing. Um, but they carry implicit value judgments. And the one thing that I would say is that. There's a reaction that a lot of people have, which is, oh, the media is biased in that it's partisan, right? Oh, the liberal New York Times, right? Or the conservative uh, national view. And I think it's actually subtler than that um, because, you know, most of the journalists I work with are not they're, not, they're not biased in the partisan sense. But what they do have are these narratives or these stories they tell themselves about how the world works that, that really kind of frames things. Um, although, what, although, I mean, just it's just a point of order, although, I mean, we have Gallup polling going back 50 years of sort of the gang of 500 inside the, the, the Beltway, the D.C. press corps. And I mean, it's 84 to 92 percent vote for the Democrat nominee for president yeah. of the United States. So, I mean, yes, it's ideological. They have in their mind the good guys, who the good guys are and who the bad guys are, what the good policies are, what the bad policies are. But it's also partisan. Yeah. Yeah, there's definitely something to that. I mean, I used to go through this when I was the editor of the Ottawa Citizen, which is, you know, the Ottawa's the capital, the nation's capital of the federal government in Canada. Right. And uh, I had a reporter who used to write stories all the time about um, the war the government was waging against the public sector unions, right? Um, and you might have something like that in Washington as well. And, and once, once uh, I said to the reporter writing, I said, how come the story's not framed as the federal government defending taxpayers, mm-hmm. right? Yes, and, yes. And, and she kind of looked. She looked at me like I was crazy, right? She said, "But, but they're attacking the unions, right?" And and I. Tried Who are to these taxpayers you speak of? Yes, right, right yeah, exactly. And so, so there's definitely something to that, yeah. Um, and so, so I don't deny there's partisanship, but I think I think it, it, it's 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 partly partisan, but it's also just we have narratives about white knights, and uh, it, it goes back to these stories about you know like evil, evil capitalists and so on that are that are partly partisan, but also partly just baked into our understanding of how the world we think the world works that a lot of journalists carry with them. Uh, Yes. Well, right. And and and, you know, the question is, uh, what is their real true level of understanding of how the world works? I mean, these are you have a lot of people, frankly. um, I mean, here's my perspective, um, but there's a lot of data to back this up who are mediocre students uh, particularly when you get into uh, harder skills like math and science, and they're just writing about things they don't know. So they pick on somebody who's a fellow traveler in that space, and they just adopt that person's position. Right. Yeah, I think, I think one of the interesting things, and, and if, I, if, I, if I write a sequel to that piece I wrote, it'll, it, I'd like to write something or at least do some thinking about um, what the, the current uh, pandemic and so on has exposed about the media. And one aspect that it has exposed is, 
is the inability of a lot of um, journalists to understand um, not just science, but also uh, also statistics in particular, right? Yes. The data around, uh, around uh, yes. the coronavirus and so on. Something that's very hard to, you know, the basic difference between, you know, a death rate and a case fatality rate and so on. All this stuff that, um, you know, journalists, by, by, by almost definition, don't have an adequate handle on. And it's very hard. The expertise uh, angle is so uh, so difficult to get a handle on as well, uh, competing experts and so on. So it's, 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 it's been an eye-opener for me sort of just seeing from the outside, I'm not a journalist anymore, but seeing the way the media has responded to and dealt with the, uh, the coronavirus. Well, yeah, right. And on that topic, uh, there's a, an interesting piece in The Guardian uh, by Thomas Chatterton Williams, man of the left, but who admits... We often accuse the right of distorting science, but the left changed the coronavirus narrative overnight, writing, two weeks ago we shamed people for being in the street. Today we shame them for not being in the street. Talking, uh, obviously, about the protests over uh, police uh, uh, excessive force in the wake of the George Floyd killing. Um, But, you know, that's at least honest, and you can have a conversation with Thomas Chatterton Williams, but it's those that are dishonest that pretend they're men and women of science no matter what positions they take, even when they run directly into conflict with one another. Yeah, this is something that's kind of um, frustrated me quite a bit because, um, you know, I'm one of those kind of squares who does believe that, you know, experts have uh, a role in society sure. and that um, there is a role for expertise and, and a, certain, a certain amount of technocracy. Um, and it, it was really, really disheartening for me to see because the same thing happened here in Canada where uh, the prime minister actually just last week um, came out of hiding, where he's basically been holed up in his cottage. Parliament's not sitting here in Canada, and uh, he came out with a security detail into a into a Black Lives Matter, pro- Matter protest. And uh, not only did he sort of just sort of say, "Well, it had to be done," but he was defended by a lot of people in the media, uh, saying, "You know, you know, you made a calculated risk. You know, it's as important to protest as it is to protect yourself from the virus and so on." Which, as you know, is completely at odds with everything we've been told for the previous three months. Yeah, yeah. Really interesting uh, insights from a practitioner in the space. He is Andrew Potter, associate professor of the Max Bell School of Public Policy at McGill University, former editor-in-chief of the Ottawa Citizen in Canada. Look forward to more of your scholarship, Andrew Potter. Thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Oh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. Take care. Show.com. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Uh, here's a fun piece <laughs> and uh, a fun website sent to me by a friend. This, the website is wellandgood.com. And just to give you a sense of the uh, deep thinking going on over at wellandgood.com and the target audience, uh, other stories uh, from the one I'm about to address include uh, offerings like this. Tired of choosing between feeling cute or feeling sweaty? Here's how to have both. Should I just wear sweatpants since nobody's really going to see me? Ugh, no, I should put on jeans because I feel more productive. Right. Okay, so you get this is for the white suburban champagne socialist female. Uh huh. The piece uh, I will tackle, not the sweatpants versus jeans. 
this is how to talk to white family members and friends who just don't understand their privilege. Fantastic. Thank you for this instruction. Boy, wouldn't this be fun if a family member uh, tried to uh, offer this conversation in this way? Uh, the uh, author, one Kells McPhillips, interviewed uh, Michelle Sahin, activist, coach, and co-founder of From Privilege to Progress, an organization dedicated to desegregating the public conversation about race. Desegregating the conversation. Okay. Uh, and uh, Miss Sahin provides guidance on how to respond to three of what uh, the two of them determined are the most damaging instances of privilege circulating on social media from news outlets and in-person-to-person discussions. So it's very scientific. You ready for the three issues and how you can learn? You ready to be uh, SJW-splained? Number one. I get that black people are angry, but why do the protests have to resort to property destruction? Sahin's response, and by the way, this is one of these sort of implicit bias hucksters that's probably coming to a local school district near you. Or uh, one of her cadre of uh, race hustlers. Privilege monitors. I get that black people are angry, but why do the protests have to resort to property destruction? Sahin's response, why are you more concerned about the violence that's happening at the protest than you are about black people losing their lives? Fathers, sons, daughters, mothers, grandmothers, grandfathers, nieces and nephews. If you're more concerned about public property than human life, you are coming at it from a place of privilege. (laughs) Adding people need to remember that this is over 400 years of oppression. This isn't coming out of nowhere. All we are asking is for police to stop killing us innocently. And this is what happens. They would rather meet us with violence than just agree to stop killing us. Sihin also pointed out, the author is quick to add, armed white protesters enter private property across the country in response to quarantine measures that kept them out of work. At that time, no one threatened to deploy the military on their protests. No one used rubber bullets or, uh, bullets or tear gas on them. No one openly questioned why they weren't protesting peacefully. Uh, is there anything uh, correct in what uh, Sahin said? You have to make a choice. And if you recognize that property destruction is bad, uh, destroying someone's property, their livelihood, that's bad. Then you are, by definition, more concerned about property than black people losing their lives. You can't be concerned about both. That's what we call false binary, isn't it? 400 years of oppression. Is that the basis of uh, all of uh, those who chose to engage in violence. It was a release over 400 years of oppression. All we're asking is for the police to stop killing us innocently, and this is what happens. They would rather meet us with violence than just agree to stop killing us. That, that's a real uh, argument that's being had, whether or not the police will agree to stop killing black people. We've gone over the data. Uh, these arguments are so specious, such straw men, they're hardly worth discussing, except to the extent that You probably get more people that read this than take the time to understand the data and uh, try to think about the uh, many competing issues in a holistic way. And the the white protesters, this also false comparison. Ilhan Omar is an example of a a demagogue who uh, tried to do this as well. Armed white protesters entering private property. What are you talking about? Armed black protesters 
like the new Black Panthers in Atlanta, no problem because they were peaceful. Armed white protesters outside of uh, state capitol buildings or government offices were also peaceful. Where was the uh, where was the the instance of where they weren't being peaceful, where they were looting storefronts and burning down buildings, attacking police? But you don't need evidence or logic when you have a claim based on your identity. All right, number two, police who shoot black people are just bad apples. We can't blame the entire police force. Sahin's response, if you're a cop who sees police brutality and does not do anything about it and doesn't speak out about it, then you're not that good. If we have so many good cops, why aren't these cops stopping the bad ones? Why aren't we seeing more stories and more examples of the cops who are out there in the community doing good work, trying to rebuild trust and trying to live up to the code that they're supposed to live up to, to protect and serve? You know, why aren't we seeing the stories of cops acting heroically and and um, uh, protecting and serving. Gosh, I wonder why why that is. Why don't we have more examples from the 375 million interactions between 800,000 police officers in this country and 330 million Americans? Why, I wonder. I mean, could it possibly have something to do with the media's chosen narrative about uh, police brutality? Even within that category, of news story, uh, compare the uh, media coverage of uh, the white officer, black suspect, and in some cases victim, versus when the victim has been white and also on uh, caught on camera, cops acting badly, uh, like uh, the Tempa fellow in Dallas. You want to compare and contrast that? Why aren't we seeing more cops doing good? Maybe it's because you have a narrative about cops that's reinforced by the larger media landscape and uh, the larger media landscape. And then you reinforce what the larger media landscape was reinforcing about your bias and misunderstanding, frankly, ignorance. Last one, I believe that Black Lives Matter, but I don't want to actively speak out about it. Well, then you don't believe in the cause, says Sahin. You should just be honest and say it doesn't matter that much to me. If you say that you believe in the cause by posting a black score on Instagram, but you don't want to do anything, that's very performative. Oh, you have to back it up with action. Very performative. Uh, Have you seen Nancy Pelosi and congressional Democrats this week in terms of performance art? Uh, And uh, to be... Sure, she goes, uh, being an ally to the black community can take many shapes and forms, like making donations, educating yourself through reading black voices, accepting criticism about your efforts to be anti-racist, so on and so forth. Yeah, so I agree that, you know, action, that's about as close as we'll ever get to anything sensible, um, but it's also very kindergartenish. You can't just talk, you have to walk it. Yeah, thanks for the tip. Yeah, this is these are the sort of pieces we're talking about that help you understand why so few are understanding of what's happening in this country. And uh, so many are willing to mindlessly amble about going whichever direction uh, enough people have shrieked is the right one. This is Dan Proft. show on the Salem Radio Network.
Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Noah Rothman, writing in Commentary Magazine, asks, Why do rational, compassionate, and discerning individuals lose themselves in violent crowds? This is a question that has spanned centuries. And uh, the conclusions reached by generations of philosophers and social scientists are generally aligned. He spoke with uh, Elias Kennedy, who wrote Crowds in Power. And uh, Kennedy says, The crowd is the same everywhere, in all periods and cultures. Once in being, it spreads with the the utmost violence, Rothman uh, adds. We saw that in the rioting mobs that ransacked American cities this month, as we did with the officers tasked with subduing those violent spasms. uh, These opposing crowds antagonize one another, intensifying their thirst for conflict. The ages pass and our circumstances progress, but the mob never changes. Uh, Speaking of said mobs, there is one that's uh, occupying Seattle and is... uh, establish a flux state, apparently with the acquiescence, if not approval, of the political authorities in the city of Seattle. And for more on that and them, we're pleased to be joined by Christopher Rufo, contributing editor of City Journal, documentary filmmaker and research fellow at the Discovery Institute Center on Wealth, Poverty and Morality, who's in Seattle. And uh, at, at, on his uh, Twitter feed, you can see some of the videos he's posted of what's happening Chris Rufo, thanks so much for joining us again. Appreciate it. It's great to be with you. So describe the scene in Seattle for us. So, you know, as many of you have seen since the George Floyd uh, killing and subsequent uh, protests and riots, uh, a group of protesters and Antifa-affiliated activists uh, engaged in a pitched battle uh, with Seattle Police Department for about a week in the attempt to take over their East Precinct building. And the press had bubbled up. It was very negative towards the police. And the mayor of Seattle, Jenny Durkin, and police chief Carmen Best made the decision to have the police officers and National Guard abandon the East Precinct and surrender it to the protesters. And what you saw after initial period of confusion is that the protesters have cordoned off a six-block area. They've barricaded it. Uh, They have armed guards uh, and, at times, checkpoints. And they've established what they call the Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone. Uh, And they're trying to set up, in effect, a parallel government uh, within this region in opposition uh, to the state and local authorities. And so this um, uh, Mogadishuing of uh, Seattle, this is uh, warlordocracy, essentially, is what uh, you're potentially on the cusp of. Uh, the decision to uh, abdicate, was this because they were being overrun or was this out of um, sort of political expediency? So I talked with a, a number of Seattle police officers with knowledge of the internal deliberations who had also been on the front lines of the barricades over the past week. And uh, officers told me that they had basically uh, been able to defend the territory, but they were getting hit with bottles, rocks, improvised improvised explosive devices, um, and they were just getting hammered night after night after night. And they were really, one officer said, we were losing the PR battle because the activists would uh, attack and then officers would defend themselves with pepper spray or flashbangs. Uh, but the media was really only covering this narrative of police overreaction, police brutality, and peaceful protest. So once they started really losing the media battle, um, at that point they made the kind of higher-ups uh, in SPD and the mayor's office uh, made the political decision to abandon it um, because they felt like it was no longer sustainable Uh, politically or in the current media environment. And and what about, uh, I don't know the area of Seattle well enough to know the answer to this question, the the businesses and or residents in this uh, six-block 
flux state, free Capitol Hill? Yeah, it's it's a mix because this actual particular block in this particular neighborhood is probably the most progressive and kind of Antifa supporting block in the entire uh, city of Seattle, really in the entire state of Washington. So it's really the base of their support. It's the most radical place, the most kind of historic place for progressive organizers. So they have, in one sense, they have a friendly neighborhood environment. But in another sense, as they've seized political control of this area, they've done so without the consent or the vote or the approval of neighbors and businesses. And they've essentially annexed the territory in an anti-democratic process. And in effect, they're politically holding these folks hostage and they have no recourse politically, they have no recourse democratically, and they have no recourse to call the police because officers told me they've been instructed to only go in in the case of an active shooter or a major fire. So really what you're seeing is kind of lawlessness, anarchy, kind of new mini regime inside the city of Seattle. I want to discuss this more because this is fascinating. Uh, What has the Governor Inslee's response been? Uh, What are are they expansionist in uh, disposition? More with uh, Chris Rufo about what's happening in Seattle and just the whole abolish the police movement and replace it with Antifa. I guess that's one philosophy. Chris Rufo, contributing editor of City Journal, documentary filmmaker, research fellow at the Discovery Institute Center on Wealth, Poverty, and Morality. We'll be right back with him after this. I'm a joker. I'm a smoker. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. We're talking to Chris Rufo, contributing editor, City Journal, documentary filmmaker, research fellow at the Discovery Institute Center on Wealth, Poverty, and Morality. He is in Seattle, and he has a first-person account of what's happened in this uh, free Capitol Hill flux state that Antifa has essentially established, where they, the police and the civilian political authorities have abdicated, and uh, they have taken over. Uh, I saw uh, some people were uh, retweeting some of the tweets coming from some of these individuals that are apparently in charge, talking about the need for supplies and this and that. Um, what, you know, what, so what is the nature of their governance? I mean, when they're requesting supplies and munitions and so forth for 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 themselves, for residents, uh, are they allowing businesses to operate? How, how is this working? Yeah, the question of governance is really the key question, and we've seen that unfold over the past few days. Uh, What's happened is that there are a few kind of rival factions within the autonomous zone that are competing to establish political authority. Uh, You have the criminal justice activists and the more establishment crowd, uh, people who are actively engaged in the kind of mainstream political process. They really want this to be kind of Black Lives uh, Matter-oriented protests for specific demands like cutting police funding by 50%. Uh, you have the more radical Antifa and and some of the other uh, activist groups that want the total abolition of the police, abolition of prisons, and the establishment of kind of an anarcho-communist state. Uh, there's a, a strong faction of them. And then third, what you've seen over the past few nights is an armed group of essentially paramilitaries uh, that had been patrolling the streets with AK-47s, other firearms, and uh, one person in particular, 
uh, Raz Simone, who's a rapper who has been kind of entourage of armed guards. And they've been, you know, going around and beating people up who disobey. And they're telling people, we are the police now. We're the authorities here. Uh, sparking widespread fears that uh, in the absence of the police, uh, what we've done uh, in this neighborhood in Seattle is enable a kind of warlordism or rule by the strongest. Um, and that is sparking uh, widespread fears uh, in Seattle and throughout the country. And and so and the mayor Durkin is saying what to this? Governor Inslee is saying what to this? It's just uh Oh, just let them have their six blocks. I mean, what what is the attitude of the officials as this is playing out? Uh, Mayor Durkin has disappeared the past few days. She initially was releasing a statement saying that this was a a, a de-escalation tactic and they were putting trust in the protesters. Um, and over the past few days, she's really disappeared. And what's happening is that other members of the city council are now calling for her resignation and siding with the protesters. So you have a city council that is siding with the protesters against the mayor. The mayor is extremely isolated right now. She hasn't taken action. She hasn't exhibited any leadership. And according to my sources within the Seattle Police Department, uh, the mayor and the police chief have said uh, in, in operational meetings, we have no plan. We're going to go day by day and see how this thing unfolds. Um, so y- you're really seeing something extraordinary. And the governor uh, had just an unbelievable press conference yesterday. He was talking about coronavirus, telling people to wear masks and uh, maintain social distancing. A reporter asked him, what do you think about the Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone? And he said, I don't know. I haven't heard anything about it. So as part of his state was under the control of armed paramilitaries, uh, the governor was totally out to lunch and worried about people uh, wearing masks in public parks, which I think just demonstrates the total ineptitude of the political leadership in this city and state. It's just it's stunning. I, I, what would the reaction have been if it had been, uh, you know, reopen rally goers, uh, similarly armed, who just said this is an autonomous zone and we're going to open up all the businesses here and let them operate. Police, you can't come in. And if you do, we're going to defend the businesses against the police. Uh, how would that have gone? The same? I doubt it. <laughs> yeah, I doubt it. I mean, the, and, and it really strikes at the heart of the the kind of torn allegiances of the political class in this city, uh, where you have um, now, uh, they're saying, a majority of council members that might either vote to defund the police 50 percent or abolish the police department entirely. So typically what you would see is protesters protesting the elected officials, uh, and then they would negotiate or kind of fight it out in the political process. But what you're seeing now is something extraordinary. The protesters and the elected officials are on one side, uh, and they're fighting against their own uh, police department, which has, uh, you know, really been devastating. And I think you're going to see in the future if they're either going to cut the police, potentially by up to 50 percent, or you're going to have kind of officers leaving, retiring, uh, taking buyouts or transferring to other departments. Because, uh, frankly, when you can't look to your political leadership for support as a law enforcement officer, uh, you're in a lot of trouble and you're in a very precarious position. Well, and uh, you, you talk about competing groups uh, that are trying to establish hegemony in the autonomous zone. This sounds like a sci-fi novel. Uh, and, uh, and, and so what, when that plays itself out, then do they ally and say, well, 
you know, this is our autonomous zone, but I'll tell you what, uh, we'll we'll see this territory or we'll help you get this territory and you can lord over this territory. I mean, what? how many people are we talking about and what is their potential to expand their footprint? Yeah, well, I, I think what, you know, what I've noticed and observed on, and, and reported on the past uh, two days is that they're really trying to, uh, they're really realizing that the they're now losing the PR war. Uh, you know, the president has been tweeting about it. They're getting a lot of heat. So they're trying to uh, basically tell people, hey, put your guns away, uh, no violence. Um, you know, so they're trying to even rein in their own kind of most extreme activists. But the problem is that they don't have any mechanism for political authority. It's basically uh, they know how to function as protesters against something, right. uh, but they have no experience in governance. So this is um, this is know, Hobbesian state of nature stuff is what this is. It is. Yeah, it is. You know, I was joking with folks that, you know, they thought it was going to be a state of Rousseau, that everyone is peaceful and noble. And once you get rid of the state, everything is good. And they ended up with Hobbes, with warlords beating people up and establishing police power. So it's a conflicting vision. And I think it's a symbol of our own political divisions in this country where you have people who uh, uh, recognize the necessity of law and order and people that really want to uh, get rid of it. So um, I think it's a, it's, a, it's a huge story that speaks beyond just the immediate circumstances. I, I want to hold you over just a, a couple more questions on this because it's such a fascinating and disturbing real-time drama that's playing itself out. Uh, more with Chris Rufo, contributing editor, City Journal, documentary filmmaker, right after this. The more you'll know, this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. And um, this is a tweet from one of the uh, acolytes of Black Lives Matter, perhaps participants. I don't know who he is, but certainly got a lot of attention. 400,000 plus likes. When you expose a racist student, you stop them from attending a university that will allow them to become a racist healthcare worker, teacher, lawyer, real estate developer, politician, etc. Andrew Sullivan saw this and he wrote, this is just beyond chilling. It's the logic of purges and cultural revolution and mob, quote unquote, justice. It has over 400,000 likes. Liberal democracy, liberal democracy is extinct. Uh, liberal democracy is extinct with that kind of uh, Hobbesian attitude, as we were discussing with Chris Rufo, contributing editor to City Journal and documentary filmmaker who rejoins us. Um, what about that? Is that uh, that's essentially what you're hearing, isn't it? That's the thuggery of the mob is uh, we need to anti-racism is our mantra and we need to to uh, pull it out root and branch wherever we see it manifests itself, however, seemingly innocuous or maybe even not present. Yeah, I, I think that's what's happening. But I, I think there's a more complex dynamic at play. And my, my reading of the situation really comes from the kind of postmodern and Marxist scholar Herbert Marcuse, yeah. who, who wrote that, you know, what, what activists need to do to implement kind of worldwide communist utopia or socialist state, um, they need to have the moral legitimacy of the dispossessed. So they take issues of race and racism particularly. Um, he talked about in the United States the African-American 
kind of oppressed person is that kind of symbolic necessity uh, for driving uh, larger political change. And I think what we're seeing is that uh, progressives have latched onto that in a very strong way, and they're trying to use the kind of spectacle and symbolism of police brutality and violence and oppression uh, in this narrative to establish a, a rhetorical dominance that really can't be questioned uh, or you'll be labeled a racist or a white supremacist or any other uh, kind of nasty epithet. And frankly, it's working. And I think that tweet that you mentioned shows that it's working because uh, you're having this kind of generative mob that can go after anyone at any time in any place uh, and kind of use these, um, you know, I mean, genuine historical experience of racism in the United States, uh, which I think is, is real and, and we should certainly uh, uh, consider, but they're using that to achieve kind of socialist political power uh, in a way that I think is disingenuous, uh, but unfortunately also very effective. Yeah, more people should uh, familiarize themselves with Marcuse and Reich and the Frankfurt School. Uh, solidarity and marginality, as you're describing. Absolutely right. Christopher Rufo, contributing editor of City Journal, documentary filmmaker, research fellow at the Discovery Institute's Center on Wealth, Poverty, and Morality. Thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Awesome. Thank you. Uh, be safe in Seattle, and uh, thank everybody for joining us on this edition of the Dan Prof Show as well. That's a wrap for today. Please come back tomorrow. Fake news. He's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news.